The Protestant Reformation did a lot of good things for the Bible, but were there also some unintended consequences? This is the Bible Reset Podcast brought to you by the Institute for Bible Reading. Welcome to the show. I'm Alex Goodwin, joined by my colleagues Paul Kimnitty and Glenn Powell. Today, we're also excited to have Dr. Jennifer Powell McNutt with us. Jennifer is the Franklin S. Dearness Associate Professor in Biblical and Theological Studies at Wheaton College and a fellow in the Royal Historical Society. She specializes in the history of Christianity and the history of the Bible, and specifically the, you know, somewhat important period known as the Reformation. We're going to talk with her today about the impact of the Protestant Reformation on the Bible, the good things, and maybe some of the not so good things. Jennifer, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, Jennifer, we're uh, really pleased to have a Reformation historian on uh, the Bible Reset. And I think we often forget that the Bible has a history Mm. beyond its inception. (laughs) Yes. And uh, it's a complicated (laughs) I might say a convoluted history. And uh, throughout history, we've done things to the Bible. Mm. And uh, some of those things have advanced the Bible's mission in the world and others, others not so much. So we're anxious to hear from you. Thank you. This clearly catalytic era, uh, you know, for for the Bible. But before we jump into that, uh, tell us a little bit about your personal journey and specifically how you got hooked on the Bible. Wonderful. Yes, I'm so glad to be part of this conversation and just to share a bit about my life and about my 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 work, too. So, um, yeah, so I think for me, uh, I really came to to love and to know the Bible because of my family. First and foremost, Um, it really starts there. Just growing up in a home um, where my parents were in ministry. And, um, you know, leading churches. And so for us, you know, talking about scripture and reading about it, and even um, as kids, we were invited into thinking through how would how would you communicate these biblical truths to a congregation? It's very interesting how much they asked us to think in terms of sermon illustrations and so I just I don't even remember a time where I wasn't doing that. <laughs> um, and so all of those uh, ways were, were really wonderful. Um, you know, at one point I was I was also living in the Bible Belt. And so just there's such a culture there, of course, knowing scripture and memorizing it and, um, you know, devotional readings and Bible studies and and all of that was formational for me. Um, and especially, I think now, as I look back on it as a as a reformed Christian, um, you know, the, there's a robust doctrine of the Holy Spirit that says that when we read Scripture, that the Holy Spirit is is at work in that reading and helping us to to understand, helping us to grapple with what we don't understand, and also confirming in us. A certainty and a clarity um, of that truth that this that this is true that God is really speaking to us through God's word and not only did I experience that um, growing up in my own reading of scripture but um, that was just really modeled for me uh, with my with my family uh, my mom has an incredible conversion story where she wasn't a Christian and then 
the American Bible Society put a, a Bible on her doorstep and she just read it in her home. And that's how she came to know the Lord and started to seek out the church. And that completely transformed her life. And so even though that's not, that wasn't my experience in the same way and that's not my story in the same way, um, her story has had such an impact on me and how I think about what happens when I open up the Bible and what can happen. So, yeah, so that's a big part of it. And then I think just shifting into school. So for me, I became really excited about learning um, the to read the Bible in the original languages. So I studied, you know, New Testament Greek um, in college and became, uh, I majored in, concentrated in biblical languages uh, as an undergraduate student. So that really then led me into, you know, graduate studies. And I I even taught uh, New Testament Greek uh, as my first teaching classes that I, that I taught um, at the different schools that I went to. And so, yeah, so there's that side of it, the educational side and trying to get at that original reading of the text to the best of our abilities. And then um, I think shifting now into the work that I do with students and at, at the church, my husband and I are very active in the leadership of our church and ministry. And, you know, and then with our own family, and sort of passing that on. So, yeah, there's just so, so much to say about it, but it's just very rich. Wow, that's very rich. And, you know, we're an organization, the Institute for Bible Reading, that actually came out of the Bible Society movement. We were part of International Bible Society Biblica um, and a close sister organization to the American Bible Society. So, (laughs) yeah, so those uh, connections are there. And that's that's a rich tapestry of kind of Bible connections that you have there. And that's that's wonderful. So turning to the to the Reformation. I grew up in Denver in the Christian Reformed Church, uh, Dutch Reformed background. And I have to say, uh, not that this was necessarily explicitly taught, but I kind of got the idea that church history started at the Reformation. Okay. It, it seems to be like that's when we started paying attention to it. Okay. Uh, it and, you know, I went through Christian schools the whole way through and everything. Um, and there was kind of a, I don't really remember again, somebody explicitly saying this, but I kind of had this lingering sense that. The Bible was lost and covered over before the Reformation. Mm-hmm. So the Reformation was this great unveiling and return to the scriptures that had been, you know, covered over by bad tradition, all this mm-hmm. sort of thing, this kind of caricature of the, the history there. So I'm wondering if you could just say a word about what really was the status of the Bible before the Reformation, yeah. you know, briefly. And then what did the Reformation really do for the Bible? What are the biggest recoveries mm. that happened? because of the Reformation or the Bible? It's such an excellent question, and there is a lot of confusion about that, and it requires some nuance um, and some complexity. So thank you. Good question. So the Reformation did not introduce the vernacular Bible. (laughs) So I mean, the Bible in common languages Mm. was not introduced by the Reformation. And I think that's so important for us to, to recognize, um, because it does then get us to ask the good question, which is what was really happening with the Bible that was extraordinary in its time. And um, so, and I'm happy to answer that. Uh, But so it's important to keep in mind that there is this big shift happening with scripture. First, really, you should start with 
Charlemagne. Um, so Charlemagne and his impact in in bringing together kind of a, a scattered and um, uh, divided Western world, you know, that has been uh, affected by the fall of the Roman Empire. And Charlemagne, Charlemagne really brings in what's called the, the Carolingian Renaissance and um, really encourages the learning of Latin and, you know, education and the transmission of scripture um, in Latin. And so it really should start with him. And I think, of course, even before Charlemagne, for the Western story, Jerome, <laughs> you know, so in the Latin Vulgate and, you know, bring, bringing the Bible in an ex- accessible way to the West through the language that it understood. Um, and then after coming on, then the, the next big shift that we see is with the the emergence of the printing press in the West, and with the fact that now we're going to move from these scriptoriums, these medieval scriptoriums, where you know the the monastic orders are are really just copying the Bible, to this way of being able to um, you know copy scripture, multiple copies of scripture. Um, and so that's that's the next big, big shift that we see. And that happens in the mid 15th century. So um, so that's that lots of scholars today say that the printing press and its role in printing the Bible created an audience and a desire to have more access to the Bible. Mm-hmm. That then was really ready to receive the Reformation message of Scripture is supreme. That Scripture is supreme. So there are people ready to learn, you know. Um, and a lot of that is happening already in the fifteenth, in the in the fourteen hundreds, so the fifteenth century. So a kind um, of a convergence of historical things that happened that were yes, good for the Bible. That were good for the Bible, absolutely. Yeah. So then. The big then the next shift that's also happening in that time period, and especially in the early 16th century, is the the Renaissance humanism. And what Renaissance humanism is doing is it's saying we need to go back to these original languages, and we want to we want to recover the ancient um, readings, ancient philosophy, ancient theology um you know so for us that would be church fathers but that also meant the bible in its original languages so mm. manuscripts yeah. the bible manuscripts so um so then that what that did was to say that in order for us to have a good translation of scripture um so even in common languages we we can't go just to latin because Latin is a translation as well. We need to go back to Greek mm. and Hebrew. And that is what changes. The medieval vernacular Bible is not based on the original languages of scripture. So the Reformation prioritizes that. And what that does is it transforms the function and purpose and role of the Bible in common languages. Because now it has an authority that is not derived from the Latin, right? It's not a derivative mm. authority. 
it has authority in its own right, just as the Latin has an authority in its own right based on original languages. So that that completely sh- shifts everything. Um, and then I would say what is really happening with the Reformation and the, the vernacular Bible then is not so much now we're going to put the Bible in people's hands because, of course, we have at this point, you know, very few people can read the Bible and can purchase the Bible, right? So what the reformers are doing is they are calling for the Bible in, in common languages to transform the worship experience. Mm. So they are bringing the vernacular tongue into the worship experience mm. of everyday people. And that happens in multifaceted ways. That happens in the reading of scripture. That happens in preaching on scripture, then explaining it, right? And not to say that the medieval church never preached, but nonetheless, preaching in vernacular language is the change that's really happening. And then liturgy, singing, right? Singing the hymns, singing the psalms, all of that. So the whole worship experience of the everyday Christian is suddenly understandable. Wow. Um, That sounds like a big deal, right? It's a big deal. Yeah, yeah. It, is, it excites me, I think. And of course, we live in that legacy today. And I think when we look at things like even the Roman Catholic Church today, we look at Vatican II, and it's recognition of this is actually important for the worship experience of everyday Christians, that we have uh, scripture in a language that, that they can understand, and even liturgy in a language that they can understand. So, um, so yeah, so I think it has a huge impact on the church and not just in the Protestant tradition. So it's tied to this. That's a fascinating thing that tied to the Renaissance ideas and the original languages. So would you say the reformers themselves kind of following in that stream of going back to the sources, right? Not the Latin, but even farther to the original languages kind of embraced this sense of a greater importance of scripture, greater authority of scripture and Maybe the other Reformation doctrines, like the clarity of Scripture, the sufficiency of Scripture, and so forth, they come out of that. Is that is that accurate to say? That's a great, yeah, that's a, a great question. So I would say that, yeah, they are absolutely shaped by Renaissance humanism. They want to go back to the the, the origins, to the fountain, as they say, ad fontes, mm. back to the source. Um, and so... But for them, so here's where we need to complicate it. And that is that that doesn't mean um, rejecting everything that happened before their time. You know, they, they're not that arrogant. <laughs> they right. think right. that they're the only ones ever who, you know, who, who know the truth. In fact, uh, you know, the, the main reformers that most people will know, Martin Luther, John Calvin, for example, they believe that the church, you know, the church cannot be overcome, right? Um, there are always the faithful in every generation. And even though it's not always visibly clear that nonetheless, uh, God is always at work and they're always faithful Christians and faithful teaching um, in every generation. And so for them, that means going back and appreciating church history, you know, certainly using church history, benefiting from church history prior to the Reformation and but also discerning, you know, not accepting everything wholesale. They really realized that, you know, that church councils or even different theologians, 
that they disagreed on things. And so trying to understand what is scripture saying is scripture has the final word. Mm. Um, so, but that doesn't mean silencing, you know, half of the <laughs> church's right. history. So I love that part of their story. Cause I think that that's really what we need today. We, we need to return mm. to that kind of attitude, which is, which is, more expansive in how we think about God at work in the church throughout all the generations, you know, all over the world. And, you know, we can be those kinds of Christians, I think, who who still hold scripture supreme. Were there any surprises kind of during this period? You know, in in your book, I was reading about Henry VIII's role, yeah. who, you know, I, I'm i deficient in my history. I've always just kind of thought of him as a kind of a villain, you know, um, but but he had an important role in kind of championing these vernacular translations, if I'm uh, if I'm correct. But then it be, kind of became a roller coaster where he yeah. outlawed specific <laughs> people from reading the Bible on their own. And, you know, yeah. it kind of became more complicated after that. But were there any kind of surprises during this period? Thank you. That's such a good question. Um, yeah. So there were some unexpected champions, I think, of the vernacular scripture. In Henry VIII's case, it usually serves his own purposes. <laughs> so <laughs> we have to acknowledge that of um, the story that you're referring to, of course, is that he, you know, when the Reformation serves his purposes, you know, he he really elevates those leaders. And then those leaders are the ones who really advocate for um, you know, vernacular scripture. And again, you know, in churches, right? We need to have uh Bibles in churches and they're, you know, chained to the pulpits because <laughs> they're very valuable, you know, wow. and you don't want anyone to take them. But um, you know, so uh but then, you know, when there's a shift that happens in his own life and he becomes kind of more um, of an alienating figure and he begins to provoke those permissions to read scripture. So, yeah, so he definitely uses the Bible as his own tool uh, when it serves him. But um, I was thinking about that. It's such a good question about, I, I, probably I would say some of the surprises are just the, and this comes from the, the, the contemporaries of the time surprised to see just people engaging talking about scripture in the taverns and you know um there's this like famous quote about cobblers and they're talking about theology and so i i would say the surprise is how the culture is really transformed and shaped by the emergence of the bible in common languages in a in a more diffuse way, um, again, through song, through reading out loud, through um, preaching in the streets, you know, um, and then, of course, they require Bibles. They put Bibles in taverns, which remember that taverns are hotels. So it's like before the Gideon Bible, this, you know, that's what wow, the, yeah. <laughs> the Reformation was doing in Geneva. They said every tavern must have a bible that's the gideon bible before the gideon bible so uh you know so those i think that's really surprising the other thing i would say and just because this is an interest of mine too is just how this really shapes women um you know there's just a lot of uh women in the 16th century who just talk about how um transformative this is that they 
they get to learn scripture. They get to read scripture. They get to engage with the Bible. And some of the comments that we have from the, that time period indicate that they felt like there was such a an extra obstacle for them. So not just for, mm. for men who weren't of mm. a certain status, but also just for women, you know, and most women, um, an extra obstacle. And I, I'm sure that it must have been very powerful when Luther began to say, we need to have schools that are for girls and boys, you know, public schools that are for mm. girls and boys teach them literacy of scripture. I mean, that's what they were teaching them was how to read the Bible. And um, so, yeah, so it's very interesting to see in those, what, what they do with that. Of course, they, they see, you know, they're sort of inspired by that and they're encouraged in that to, to, um, to encourage each other in scripture. And, you know, in, in some cases, some controversial things too. preaching, you know, there's preaching of women going on and, and those mm. kinds of Mm-hmm. So it is very, um, yeah, I would say that's kind of surprising. It's in the book, the people's book, there's a really good article by or chapter by Sujin Park. I always recommend this chapter. I think it's so interesting because it does talk a little bit about how there was such an encouragement of everyday people to engage with scripture. And there is a shift that happens in the second kind of generation um, in terms of more mediation. And I can talk more about that. <laughs> so, yeah, speaking about like the next generation and kind of where some of the ideas of the Reformation went, um, I'm going to just voice here what is, a, I think, a criticism of Reformation ideas that gets some play, you know, these days. Um, and we have to say, kind of allowing for the fact that popular conceptions of things don't always match what the reformers themselves meant. So when yeah. we think of things like the priesthood of all believers or sola scriptura, um, I think people get ideas about those just based on the words that then the reformers didn't necessarily have. So you got to give that, yes. you know, it's kind of due, but still, would you say that when you take a kind of a combination of ideas like sola scriptura, whatever that really means, <laughs> um, the priesthood of all believers, together with the confidence that the Bible is clear and sufficient, so everybody can read it, they can be their own interpreter. Um, Scripture is itself the ultimate authority. We can go to Scripture alone. Um, Doesn't that kind of naturally lead, shouldn't the Reformers have thought, well, this is going to lead to a kind of ecclesial and doctrinal chaos, right? Like, how could it not? And it even seems like it started happening pretty fast. It's not like all the Protestant Reformers agree about everything, right? The Lord's Supper. I mean, they can't even kind of get together on four things. Um, Should the Reformers have been worried about that? Or is that just an unintended consequences thing that you can't foresee um, when you're kind of reestablishing the principles of your era? What do you think about all that kind of stuff? I have a lot of thoughts. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's a big big thing. I know. this is such it's such a good question. It's such an important one. I, I think let's start off with where they were when this whole thing started. And for them, um, and this usually surprises that when you talk about the chaos of the division, for them, that was what was happening in the church from their perspective, from their experience already. Mm. That there was a lack of clarity about what the true true theology was teaching. This is partly, this is 
there's no blame that needs to be put on the Roman Catholic Church for this. This is just the fact that scholasticism, um, that's the, the rise of the universities, was happening in the medieval period pretty rapidly, that you have these cities and these city cathedrals that are developing. And now you have professors, you know, you have these theologians who are in the universities and they're writing these different things. And so the church hasn't made um, statements about what what is the right doctrine of justification. Mm-hmm. We have this reading of it and we have this reading and this, and then they're just rediscovering Augustine at this time and Augustine's debate with Pelagius. And so this is a time of, there is some confusion. So I'll just say that to start mm-hmm. off. It's, um, we need to sometimes change the way we think about the medieval church to help us to clarify what's happening with the Reformation. Um, so then for them, they actually saw the medieval church as like going through a tower of Babel kind of experience. Um, Mm. And they talk about this in their Bibles. They talk about this in their Bible prophecies, Mm. what they see, what's happening with vernacular scripture, with, with the Bible and common languages is a Pentecost moment. So it's the opposite (laughs) of what we think of uh, today for what they were seeing happening in their time. They were seeing that with the, these languages is coming understanding, coming um, the, you know, the gospel, the clarity of the gospel can be proclaimed. So that's the first place I'd start with. Mm, yep. um, then I'd say that when you, um, when you sort of demote this when you demote Latin, which is seen as a universal language and in, in some ways really functions as a universal language still for scholars. Um, when you demote Latin and you you elevate a, the common language, um, and this happens in not just in the church sphere, but this also happens in the political sphere as well. Now we have legislation, we have, you know, these you know, political meanings that are happening and they're also happening in common languages. So it's, it's a huge shift that happens in the culture. Mm. Um, and, uh, so when that happens, you end up being necessarily contextualized, right? You, you become very focused then on your region, the people who understand your language, right? Um, the people, your government system, and you become very focused in on your region as a result of that. And meanwhile, your Bible is translated the first time, but or sorry, the first time in original languages often. Um, and then it's reach, you know, there's a new translation. And then there's, you know, you see what I'm saying? And so yeah. consequently, these church communities, these traditions become very tied to their regions and to their mm. government system. The 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 diversity. On, that, on, on that point, Jennifer, I remember hearing Bible translators from Africa say, when they started getting the Bible in their own languages, rather than the languages of the colonizers—French, English, yes. and so forth—that's um, when their contextual theology really began. Right. Same okay. idea, right? That it, the Bible in your heart language. Um, is allows you to begin to think, what does theology, the Christian gospel mean in this place? In this place. Yes, exactly. Okay. So 
So I think in many ways, it is uh, an unanticipated development because they are still functioning in a system where your church and your state are connected right mm-hmm. your re- your culture your region your language all of that and so it's already con- contextualized okay so then when you have these conversations where you come together from different languages different government systems different cultures and you come together you're going to face the same thing that anybody faces when they do intercultural you know intercultural uh, dynamics, I guess, when you're navigating intercultural dynamics, um, the complexities come out. And yeah. I would say that, so you mentioned the Eucharistic controversy, and we focus a lot on what they disagreed on, but I, they agree on so many things um, about Eucharistic theology. Um, and Luther and Zwingli, when they meet at the at Marburg colloquially in 1529, this is the first time that they're meeting, you know, and they're they're <laughs> across the table from each other and they're going to talk about this really important doctrine. And, you know, it is a very complex conversation. Mm. There are some language issues that they deal with. They don't always understand some of the phrases uh, that are coming from their cultures, and um, you can just see that in the um, in the accounts. There are seven accounts of their meeting, and you can see some of the ways that they're missing each other and trying, but trying to still kind of forge connection. Um, and so, I think it's really pretty inspiring that in the end they do sign the Marburg Articles together. We often don't emphasize that, and they highlight what they don't agree on which is basically just where is jesus's body that's their question okay right, is where right. is jesus's body when we gather for communion and they you know they can't agree on that but the in the articles they say you know we're going to keep exploring it and this doesn't have to break our fellowship and mm. it's it's actually and they both sign it and in their camps sign this document and so i think sometimes we we want to paint it as overly divisive yeah. when, um, you know, some of the things that they face are very understandable and things that we still face today. And yeah, so making them the root cause of all of the divisions in the church, I think, is a misreading. Yeah, they're good. that's good. Kind of an oversimplification. You just grab a hold of they unleashed, you know, ecclesial <laughs> chaos and they're to blame for all of it. And it's just not accurate. Yes. Yeah. I mean, and then there are so many developments that happen after that. And of course, they do reshape the Western church. And um, and we live in the legacy of that. And it's a complex legacy. So, <laughs> mm. Jennifer, this is uh, this is fascinating and uh, makes me think we need to spend some more time together to, uh, <laughs> to unpack and uh you know, make sure that we're truth telling ourselves here and not over mm-hmm. things. Yeah. But spe- speaking of that, uh, I think, you know, that uh, at IFBR, uh, one of our uh, missional values and one of the things that we talk about a lot is the Bible's form. And we talk mm. about the form of the modern Bible, which I think for most people will say the yeah. modern Bible, the Bible is the Bible, you know, et cetera. Right. Uh, but it was uh, in the era of of the Reformation that there was this what somebody called 
uh, an exoskeleton that came to to the Bible, a skeleton outside of the body. And we're talking about chapters and verses and so forth. Yep. I think chapters yep. had their origin earlier, but uh, it was in the 16th century that that first numbers uh, invaded the Bible, if you will, were laid <laughs> over the Bible, kind of a foreign paratext, et cetera, et cetera. So anyhow, we we think that's a big deal. We think it influences the way people read the Bible yeah. today. And we wanted to to ask you um, how how you think of that and, you know, whether you think that the format of the Reformation um, was and is a problem. Okay. <laughs> um, so I, I think first I just want to affirm you that, of course, the the format matters. It shapes um, the design, the format. It shapes the reader's experience. It shapes how um, you receive the information. Um, it, it does have an impact. And I think we, we can all see that given the the emergence of the internet and um, you know the the ways that we are thinking about how do we communicate information on the page if it's on your computer screen if it's on your uh, you know iPhone it, you know that that has to be adjusted you know so I I really appreciate and value that and I think in studying the history of the Bible it's important for us to realize that it's a book and so it is also susceptible to the history of the book mm-hmm. um you know and so you know we're we're not talking about scrolls anymore but of course <laughs> you know that had its own reader experience um and then of course moving from the manuscript the medieval manuscript into print had its own big transformation um i like to give an example of since i i'm that little generation between the gen x and the millennials i'm right <laughs> in the middle and so i i saw the big transition like i still i took computer code classes in like first grade but like you know it's it was it was a very old it was the first computers <laughs> so um <laughs> anyway right um but anyway i remember like when when i went to college was when i got my first email account and, you know, it's like, okay, like there was a computer lab. I'd never seen anything like it. At my high school, we had typewriters. Um, so I went from typing my senior thesis on a typewriter. Three months later, I'm in a computer lab in college. So it was a huge shift. And, um, you know, it was like, I remember how, you know, we, we used to use memos and like flyers all the time. And then when the internet started, they were like, we're just going to take this flyer and we're just going to put it on the computer and the, you know you couldn't <laughs> read it right because the, the the writing was so tiny there was nothing like minimize or maximize and so you can like <laughs> this flyer on your computer and it didn't work and so they figured out we have to change the design so i think it's this is true to the story of the bible i wouldn't so similarly i want to think contextually about what the reformation was doing and i think it's really important that we understand that um the man who introduced verses or who's seen as introducing verses, so Robert Etienne, was a Huguenot, a French Protestant Christian who is experience, beginning to experience more and more persecution in France. In the 1550s, um, John Calvin is finally beginning to really establish himself. And by 1555, he really has, um, there's, there's a whole bunch of refugees that come into the city of Geneva. And anyway, 
Robert Etienne is one of those refugees who comes into the city of Geneva. And their whole project for the Bible is a is the fact, is shaped by the fact that they are not necessarily going to be with the people who are reading the Bible. They mm. are ministering to a community that has to hide itself, mm. that is on the run, that is worshiping at night um, in the fields, in the riverbeds, in caves, right? That is singing the Psalms in those places, that is having secret Bible studies. Mm. Okay. So the verses for them actually gave them a way to communicate with each other to enhance. Bible study engagement and to be able to kind of um, to learn scripture better. So, um, so I, I think it's really important to keep that in mind that they are, that this is actually a way for them to mediate and not be, not necessarily be in the room with those that are engaging in the Bible study. Um, and consequently, if you look at French Bibles, especially because, um, Stephanus, he's also known as Stephanus or Etienne, he, uh, he also put the verses in the French Bible. So he put it in the Greek, he put it in the Latin, and he put it in the French. And so he put it in the French Bible. And when he, um, you know, when he did this, the French Bible began to develop in its own special way that you can see it differing from other common language Bibles. Um, and I, this is a book I'm writing right now, actually, on this topic. Um, and that is because the French Bible, especially, is a refugee Bible. Um, and so they, the way that this Bible begins to develop is they begin to say, since I'm not necessarily going to be there, and I don't know if your pastor is trained, <laughs> right? I don't yeah. know if the person who's literate in your community is trained. We're going to pack the Bible with as much information and direction interpretive direction, liturgical direction, devotional direction, as we possibly can. And then they, of course, they also um, sell the Bible in multiple formats so that it is a big folio version that would go in your church, but also the smaller versions that you could own for your family, right? Um, And in the Reformed tradition, then, especially in the French-speaking context, they begin to even develop places where they hide their Bibles in their homes. And the Bible becomes this, this, this place for right worship and right teaching um, that they cannot necessarily access um, otherwise. So I think it's mm, important to keep wow, that context yeah. in mind. And then when we think about today, I think what you're trying to do, and I, um, it's so good because you're you're trying to get people. It's just a, it's a different. I think it's just a different time period. So, and what you're trying to do, I think, is to really get people to read the scripture and not just stop, right? As I recall, not just stop at this verse or not stop at this chapter and miss, you know, the story and um, how it all fits together. And I think you're, this is a good thing and it's something you can do. And it's, you know, when we look at the history of the Bible, it's something that that almost every generation has kind of had to re- has had to figure out, you know, what will the Bible look like and why? Wow, this is big. This is great, Jennifer. I think um, just learning some of these things. Like, I mean, you hear about vernacular Bibles, but when you say, look, it's so that they could worship together 
in their churches and and hear a language that is their own language. And when you talk about these are refugee communities, and the the reason they're packing these like making study Bibles crammed with all these notes, right? Just little type. You you look at those pages and you can't believe how much they're fitting on a page. But there were there were contextual historical reasons for that at the time. I think one of the big takeaways for me today, what I'm hearing you say is just learn to think historically better. Like why did they do what they did? Yeah. Right. And and we're thinking like 500, you know, years later, whatever. And we're thinking about some of the downsides that we see today. Well, I it just seems like you're saying, look, um, know the history, know it, know it in a fair way, right? And then and, do what you need to do in your period, given the challenges of your own time. And the Bible has a changing history. So do what you need to do in a, in a you know, that honors the text, but helps people today. It helps people. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Because I think, you know, the Reformation actually in its goal to diffuse the world with Bibles that people can read and understand, they succeeded. Yeah. They did it. Yep, yep. <laughs> um, they, they, they did what they set out to do. Now, the problem that we face today is different. And that is that people have access to it, but they don't read it. And right, we, we've seen those studies done. Um, I'm thinking of the Barna group, some of the studies that they do about how, you know, how often did you go to church? How often did you pick up your Bible? How many Bibles do you own? All that kind of statistics shows that, well, especially Protestants have like, what, six or seven Bibles in their home. Yeah, yeah. But, um, and of course, now we have digital Bibles, too. So you can just have it on your phone. So the question is different. It's not how do we get to it? But, um, you know, yeah. why? Why do we take time to read it? Um, you know, how do we get invested in it and value it? Yeah. Um, so. Great. That's awesome. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Just to repeat what Glenn said, I've, I've certainly learned a lot in the last 40 minutes. Um, so, so thank you. And it's, it's just such a good reminder that we need historians like you because history is complex. It's nuanced, um, you know, much more complex and nuanced than we, we kind of typically view it as I think. Yeah, exactly. And so, uh, so yeah, it's been super fun to talk with you, uh, reformation specialist about this, this crucial period for the Bible. Uh, if our listeners are interested in reading more about the Reformation in the Bible, we'd encourage you to check out the People's Book, which which Jennifer mentioned earlier, which is a collection of essays that that she edited that explores all sorts of topics regarding the Bible's role in the Reformation and its ongoing importance as the People's Book today. So, Morning. Jennifer, thanks so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Um, and we look forward to connecting again with you soon. Thank you so much. I loved our conversation. Really appreciate it. Great. <laughs> All right. To our listeners, thanks so much for listening. We'll see you again on the next one. <laughs>